Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Today I'm traveling through the southeast. It's an area where you can really feel the influence of Europe on life in medieval England. Starting in East Kent, I'll be looking at the strange creatures carved into Canterbury Cathedral, the exotic food served at medieval feasts, and I'll discover how dramatically the coastline has changed since the map was made as I head west to the largest city in medieval England, London. The Goff map is named after its last owner, Richard Goff, an antiquarian map collector who donated it to the Bodleian Library in 1809. It's one of the first maps that tries to depict Britain accurately, with more than 600 towns and almost 200 rivers, and embedded within it are tantalizing clues about its origins and medieval England. We're used to seeing Britain like this, but then the convention was to put the east at the top because that was the direction of Christianity's holiest city, Jerusalem. Today, I'm starting my journey at the top of England, as the mapmakers saw it, on the east coast of Kent, where visitors are still greeted with an awesome sight, the magnificent White Cliffs of Dover. This dramatic coastline is where the trade in goods and ideas flowed easily between England and Europe. It was also the first line of defense against the French, and the map reveals which country had the upper hand. In the mid-14th century, when the Gulf map was made, this wasn't the edge of medieval England. Calais, about 20 miles over there across the English Channel, was English. Calais was clearly really important to the mapmaker, who showed it here as a walled town, almost on the same scale as London itself. And that's probably because about 10 or 15 years before this map was made, Edward III, the King of England, had captured Calais for the English. The Gough map was drawn while Edward was on the throne when he was trying to claim the French crown. So the large symbol of Calais on an English map could be a bold statement of the king's territorial ambitions. Edward III stationed a garrison in Calais as a base for his French campaigns. This had to be supplied from England with food and weapons. The town responsible for this was the southeast's most important international trading port, Sandwich. In the Doomsday Survey of 1081, Sandwich was ranked fourth in size and importance to London. 
Sandwich's rich medieval past is ingrained in its streets and in its buildings, like this lovely 14th century gatehouse known locally as Fishergate. And the town's coat of arms shows that in the Middle Ages, Sandwich was one of the Sank ports. Along with four others, Hastings, New Romney, Dover and Hive, Sandwich enjoyed a special relationship with the crown. The success of the Sank ports can be traced back to Edward the Confessor. In 1051, he struck a deal with the fishermen of Kent, who were able to navigate the treacherous waters of the English Channel better than anybody. He wanted men and ships to go to war, and in exchange, they managed to extract a set of privileges that enabled them to get rich. All five ports were exempt from tolls and customs duties, free to trade. And you can still catch glimpses of how they spent the wealth that these privileges brought them. Sandwich was by far the most popular port for foreign traders, but its popularity wasn't to last. This was the medieval quayside. Boats from all over the place would have been moored here, from Venice and Spain, from the Low Countries, from Italy. And they would have brought with them exotic cargoes, things like spices from the Far East, incense and myrrh from the markets of Damascus and Alexandria, and luxurious textiles from Italy. And the crews of those ships would have been talking in a cacophony of foreign languages. Believe it or not, this place would have been heaving. But today, it's not exactly a harbor for ocean-going vessels because the sea is more than two miles away. The Gulf map clearly shows Sandwich on the coast. And it's perched on a waterway that was then known as the Wansom Channel. And this channel was really important because it connected the sea to the Thames estuary, offering ships a safe harbor on their way to London. And that's why Sandwich was such a major international trading center in the Middle Ages. But tidal waters, silt from rivers, and even the erosion of the Cliffs of Thanet, which was an island in the 14th century, gradually blocked up this major shipping lane until Sandwich Haven lost its place on the coast and Thanet joined the mainland. By the 16th century, a chronicler recorded that all the haven is grown to great flatness, narrowness, crookedness and shallowness. All the international trade had to go elsewhere and Sandwich remained fixed in time. As I head west, my next stop is Canterbury. On the map, a single red route leads from Canterbury all the way down the Kent coast to Southampton. Intriguingly, the more important highway, the route from London to Dover, an ancient Roman road, isn't marked at all. Now the A2, in medieval times, this road, called Watling Street, was heavily used by pilgrims heading to Canterbury. Canterbury Cathedral was the home of Britain's most famous medieval celebrity, Thomas Becket. In 1173, when Becket was canonized, Canterbury became the most important pilgrim site in medieval England. Visitors came hoping for a miracle at Becket's tomb. But I'm going to sidestep the tourist trail. 
Medieval art is my specialty, and there are some carvings here that I find much more intriguing. I'm in the crypt, which is a wonderfully quiet space, and it's where the community here kept some of its most precious possessions, including the bones of two of its Anglo-Saxon saints. But it's not all earnest Bible stories and saints' lives down here. The capitals of the columns in the crypt are a festival of monsters, animals, and mythic creatures. This pagan imagery was commissioned in the early 12th century by the monks who worshipped here. On this capital, we have the most amazing iconography of a creature with a woman's body and two bare breasts and two wolfish heads, and she's clutching on the reins and the tail of a double-headed monster. And this is probably a scenario that's described in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which talks about the whore of Babylon riding on the beast of the seas. And this capital is an example of what I think of as the Mason's monstrous sense of humor. It's a kind of composite beast with a lion's body and the wings attached to its legs and a perplexed-looking human head stuck in its chest and a terrifying, horned, monstrous face. And he's holding, rather bafflingly, a fish and a pea pod. It's highly likely that some of the imagery came from classical writing from ancient Rome. Ovid, Pliny, and Horace. And this was controversial. There was an animated debate about whether or not it was appropriate for monks to have monstrous images like this in their religious spaces, and even whether it was sinful for them to read classical literature. But William of Malmesbury, a great scholar and translator of classical works himself, came up with a brilliant defense. He wrote that taking pleasure in pagan books was in no way a sin, as long as their ornament was employed to the glory of God. So lion cubs, which Pliny said were born dead and had to be brought to life by their mother's breath, may have been used by the monks to represent the Christian idea of the resurrection. Ultimately, these apparently pagan monsters were assimilated into Christian thought, and they were given moral interpretations coming to symbolize things like vice, the devil, and spiritual corruption. Luckily, the monsters survived the controversy. They also survived a terrible fire in 1174 that gutted the cathedral above. The entire East End had to be rebuilt. But the community of monks managed to turn the disaster into an opportunity. The monks had money to spend because of the massive numbers of pilgrims who were coming here to Canterbury to visit the shrine of St. Thomas Becket. So they had a competition to choose a mason to build their new cathedral, and they selected an extraordinary architect from France. His name was William of Saint. According to a contemporary chronicler, William was chosen on account of his lively genius and good reputation. From France, he brought a team of glaziers and sculptors and a new idea.
the Gothic pointed arch. This architectural innovation allowed William to design a church with more space, more height, and more light than had ever been seen before in England. But he didn't live to see it through. William of Saint was up on a scaffolding, examining the vaults that were being built in the crossing, when all of a sudden the scaffolding beneath his feet collapsed, and he fell amidst a clatter of timber and stone 50 feet. The fall didn't kill him immediately, but it did leave him paralyzed. And heroically, he managed to continue to direct the building project from his sickbed. But after a year, he returned to France. William died in 1185, before the cathedral was completed. But he left the Canterbury monks a masterpiece, the first Gothic cathedral in England, and a fitting space for the shrine of their beloved saint, Thomas Becket. I'm now continuing west to Rochester, but before I get there, I pass one of the towns that helps us date the map, Sheppey. In 1366, the town of Sheppey changed its name to Queenborough, but on the map it's still Sheppey, which suggests that the map was made before the name change. And the earliest the map could have been drawn is 1355, because Coventry is shown with city walls, and that's the year that the walls were built. It's from these two places that we know the golf map was made within a narrow 11-year window, at the height of Edward III's reign. My next destination is the Royal Castle at Rochester. Just after the map was completed, Edward III had the castle here fortified and refurbished. He was worried about French invaders, and Rochester was in a key strategic position, guarding the bridge over the River Medway and the road from Dover to London. Rochester Castle was already one of the strongest castles in Edward's kingdom. Its formidable Norman keep still towers over the city, 113 feet high, with walls an impressive 12 feet thick. For one of Edward's ancestors, the castle's strength presented huge problems. King John, in 1215, found himself shut out of his own castle. Contemporary chroniclers were pretty much unanimous in their condemnation for John, whom they described as a terrible king and a very bad man. He was in an almost perpetual state of civil war with his noblemen because they couldn't stand his tyranny and he couldn't control them. In 1215, these noblemen moved into Rochester in an attempt to break John's power in the southeast. John was outraged. This was his castle. He decided to besiege it in person. He started by burning the bridge over the River Medway, then attacking the castles with massive stone missiles. King John even stabled his horses inside the cathedral as an insult to the archbishop who'd let the rebels in. After nearly two months of continuous bombardment, King John's forces managed to penetrate the outer wall but they still couldn't get into this keep. It held fast. But King John wouldn't give up. And so he thought of a way around the problem, or more accurately in this case, under it. John called for local men to come to Rochester with pickaxes. 
He made them tunnel right under this corner, undermining the very foundations of the keep. And as they dug, they propped up the tunnel with wooden beams. Then he demanded 40 bacon pigs to bring fire under this tower. And so his men slaughtered the pigs and packed their carcasses into the tunnel along with lots of dry bracken, and they set the lot alight. And the heat was so intense that it burned the beams, the foundations cracked, and the tower fell. The siege soon came to an end. The rebels narrowly escaped execution, and within a year, King John himself was dead. But the castle was restored and remained a royal stronghold, significant enough to the mapmakers to mark it with the ornate striped symbol of a large city. I'm now heading to a private estate near Tunbridge. For most of Edward III's reign, England enjoyed a period of relative prosperity. A wealthy merchant class was beginning to emerge, and some London traders were making such huge fortunes that they could afford to buy vast estates in the Kent countryside. This is Penshurst Place. Behind its Tudor facade lies one of the best-preserved medieval halls in Britain. In 1338, Penshurst was a well-established hunting estate with about 4,000 acres. It was bought by Sir John Pulteney, one of the wealthiest wool merchants in the southeast, who'd been Lord Mayor of London four times. He was responsible for building this magnificent hall, complete with carvings of his staff. Food historian Mark Meltonville has prepared ingredients that would have been used to entertain guests. 14th and 15th century feast records reveal a taste for exoticism and abundance. A wide array of expensive spices, sweets covered in 24 karat gold, an impressive selection of fish and seafood, and, just like the monks at Canterbury, a fascination for monsters. Tell me about this, because this looks definitely looks like it falls into the showing off category. <laughs> this is, I think, put simply, it's a boar's head. So not, not a pig, but a wild boar. But he's been really dressed up. He's had his hair singed off, and he's been boiled in stock. So he's, he's designed for eating, if you wanted to. I'm told the cheeks and the palate are particularly tasty. But the recipe's unusual in that once you've done that, it tells you to mix up a parsley batter. So eggs and flour, and the juice from a lot, and I mean a lot, of parsley. And then you coat the head thinly with this and turn it by the fire, it said. So turn one side, turn the other, to bake the, uh, the batter off. You need lots of layers, there's about 11 on there, and you end up with this green head. Now, it's really starting to look as if the whole point to this is to bring to the table a mythical beast. He's not a boar anymore. In this hall, in flickering candlelight, you're bringing a dragon's head into the hall. Wow. The final clue to the dragon, and why I think that is, is that the end of the recipe, it tells you to, when you're serving it, to stuff his mouth with camphor-soaked rags, so that's little bits of linen, with camphor and aquavita, your spirit wine, and stuff it in the mouths and set fire to them as you bring him out. So not only is he going to look a bit like a dragon, he should flame from the mouth, or at least be smoking a little. That's really marvellous. And where does this recipe come from? This particular description, there are many English recipes for boar's head. This green one comes from a French manuscript 
manuscript from the 14th century, but it links in with the sort of food that we're serving here in Europe. They're, they're very pan-European amongst the nobility. Um, a famous one that's served in London for Richard II is something called a cockatrice. And that, for a, a cook, is quite a, an exciting dish to do because you're supposed to make two animals look like one and you end up with a yeah. huge mythical beast on the table. But what I love about food. that is that these people had monsters in their manuscripts <laughs> and they had them in their tapestries and in the gargoyles in their buildings and they also had, had them on their table. Monsters on the table, yeah. Okay, so can we set this puppy alight or rather set this dragon alight? <laughs> I think we're going to have to, uh, mostly because I've never done this before, so uh, we've, we've uh, never done a green boar's head and I've certainly never set fire to one, so I think we've really got to give it a go. Yeah. Oh, there, look at oh, that for wow. dragon. How's that? Yeah, that is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Sir John probably could have got pretty much everything that he needed to supply his household from his vast estates. But for the kind of exotic ingredients that his guests expected, he would have had to turn to the merchants of London. And that is where I'm heading now. On the golf map, there are 200 rivers marked in green, each with a circular head. In the Middle Ages, it was widely believed that rivers had their sources in lakes. Every river of significance is included because rivers were the medieval equivalent of a motorway system. In a world where few roads had been built since Roman times, rivers were by far the best way of transporting goods. And nowhere was this more true than London. The Thames was the king of rivers. It connected the heart of England to Europe and made London one of the most important and powerful cities in the medieval world. Well, compared to the 21st century city, medieval London was tiny, just here. It began in the east with the Tower of London, and then the walls swung round in the north, encompassing six different gates and ending up at Blackfriars, the Dominican house. In the centre of the medieval city was Old St Paul's, and the only bridge running into it was London Bridge. And Westminster was a completely separate town, just a couple miles along. In the early 14th century, the population of London is estimated to have been about 80,000 souls. They wouldn't even have filled Wembley Stadium. But to the medieval traveller from a provincial town where they might easily have known everyone, London was a complete contrast. More people than they'd ever seen, more noise than they'd ever heard from all the manufacturing and market trade, and a river full of boats from all over Europe. Very little remains of medieval London, most of its hundred or so churches, if they survived the Reformation, were destroyed in the Great Fire of 1666, along with the half-timbered houses crammed into its twisting lanes. But we do have the first written portrait of the city from a Canterbury clerk who worked for Thomas Becket, witnessed his murder, and wrote his biography in the late 12th century. His name was William Fitzstephen. William Fitzstephen was in love with London. He described it as a place of abundant wealth, extensive commerce, great grandeur and magnificence. 
He also gave us some surprising little details, like where to go for a late-night meal. On this stretch of river behind Vintner's place, amidst the wine shops and storerooms, Fitzstephen found a public cook shop. He was really taken with the idea that if you had unexpected guests, you could send them to the riverside where they would find anything that they desired. Fish large and small, delicacies like goose and woodcock were all available late into the night. But he did caution against the one thing he saw as a danger in London, which was the idiots who drink to excess. As well as Fitzstephen's portrait, we can get a few hints of what life was like for real Londoners from an unusual source. In the basement of the Museum of London, in each one of these boxes are human skeletons. We've got the Romans here, and then on this side we've got uh, from the medieval period, and then as we come down here... Yelena Beckvalets is an osteologist. And she selected some skeletons of Londoners who died about a decade before the golf map was made, which offer a rare glimpse of medieval lives. This skeleton is particularly wonderful because in the vertebra, still embedded in it, you can see there's an arrowhead. So you can see that area there. Oh, there's the tip. Yep. And then if you open them up, then you can oh, see the huge. fantastic metal head there, which has then gone through one and straight through into the other, and they fit perfectly together. So this would have been a fatal injury? Um, no, it probably wouldn't have been fatal. I mean, it obviously would have been incredibly painful, but you can see the areas around here with, with the bone. You can see that it's quite nice and smooth, so it's remodelled. So they probably just sort of broke off the other part and then left the, the arrowhead in. It was safer to do that rather than start cutting into the skin and right. invasing into the body. God, it narrowly missed his um, spinal cord. You can just about... Yes. You can see yeah. it just might have... Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, if you look down there, then that's where your, your spinal column would run, but it doesn't appear to have impinged upon it, so... Uh, hmm. They might have had some, obviously, discomfort when it first happened and... Discomfort. Some, yes. <laughs> That's putting it mildly, yeah, yes, I'd yeah. rather not be shot in the back. Yes, Extreme uh, discount, yes. right, OK. But quite phenomenal that they survived and, yeah. uh, and that's remained. I've read about stabbings in medieval London, but I've not come across brawls with bows and arrows. I think it's more likely that he was injured fighting for Edward III in France or maybe in Scotland. So what about this individual here? Um, well, this individual here we know is a female. She's probably in her 30s. And one of the more interesting areas is that if we look here in her vertebra, on the vertebral bodies, you can just see there's a little What's depression. What's a vertebral body? This, this is a vertebral body here. And uh, if I just take that out, you can see there's a bit of a depression here on that area there. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. And that would indicate to me that she may have carried heavy loads, so it's an indication of load-bearing and stress. Women's work could be very physical. Records show that they worked as blacksmiths and even in construction. Heavy labor may have damaged this woman's spine, but we know it didn't kill her. Both of these people died from the Black Death. The horrendous plague that came to England by boat in 1348, killing its victims in a matter of days. Their bodies were found in a mass gravesite dug outside the city walls. 
we've got a photograph here that you can see. So from that, you can see this nice line here where you've actually got the trench that they would have um, prepared. And then as people were dying, although it was an Overspill Cemetery, they're nicely laid out in rows. And then in between, sometimes you can see that they've put children. Oh, what a mournful little sight. Look at it. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's very sad, really. The Black Death had such an impact that contemporary chroniclers thought the human race itself couldn't survive it. A third or more of the people of Britain and half the population of London died in just two years. The Gough map was made just a little more than 10 years after the Black Death first struck. And it's extraordinary to think of the people who made this amazing record of their country over 600 years ago. Their world was devastated, but the map they left behind is full of confidence and remains to this day a bold statement of national identity. Later tonight on BBC Four, we take another trip into the minds of our ancestors and a cheeky look at our forebears' views on sex. Inside the medieval mind is tonight at nine and not to be missed. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.